Now, we've been, uh, we've been in the New Testament for, for quite a while here through the teachings of, of Chris and Mark, excellent teaching from 1 Thessalonians, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so I thought today what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll go back to the Old Testament for one week before Chris continues. Um, and as you probably aware, the Old Testament consists of several, several sections. There's the, uh, the first five books, the Pentateuch, or the books of Moses, what they're called. Then we have the historical books, we have the poetic and wisdom books, and then the prophets. And of course, all of these are important, but which of these four sections would you say is the most foundational for our understanding of the whole story of the Old Testament? Any guesses? Probably the first one, right? Probably most people would say if we, if we want to understand the Old Testament and even the New Testament, we have to go back to those first five books to understand who God is, how he works in this world, that he made us. But then within these five books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there is obviously a lot going on. But within these books, which one would you say would be the most important books? And obviously, again, they're all important, but which one, and, and how do we even know which ones would be the most important? Um, let me give you a few things, because, you know, we could say Genesis, because that's where everything starts, obviously. Um, but think about this. The book of Genesis spends, what, a couple thousand years in one book? The book of Exodus takes, well, we start at the beginning of Moses' life, and at the end of the book, um, Moses is still alive, so it's a much shorter time span. Um, you know, same with Leviticus, uh, Numbers. The book of Deuteronomy, we have a whole book that covers a few days. And so if you look at how much time is spent describing the certain portions of history, you'd probably have to say, well, the main focus of these five books is Deuteronomy and the second half of Exodus in Leviticus, when Israel is at Sinai. And so these are both sections where God establishes his covenant with the people of Israel. And so just by looking at how much time is spent describing everything, we'd have to conclude that it looks like the focus of these books is God establishing his covenant with his people Israel. And so what I want to look at today is the, the beginning of, Genesis, of Genesis, Exodus chapter 20, which is where the people of Israel has come, have come to Mount Sinai and God starts giving them the covenant requirements and regulations. And what we'll see is that you know, when we think about the covenant, we often say, well, you know, this is where God gives us a list of rules and Israel refuses to follow them, basically. And the rest of the Old Testament just tells us that God keeps trying to reach out to his people and his people try to run away from God. Uh, it's a very, very quick summary of the Old Testament there. But it's, it's basically true. Um, but we'll see that there's a lot more in these few verses where God comes and speaks to Moses and says, here, here, here is how we're going to be in a relationship together. And there's a lot in there that teaches us about our relationship with God as well. So if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, um, we're going to focus on the first three verses here, but we'll be moving around a little bit within the book of Exodus and, and through the New Testament as well. So hopefully you'll brought a Bible and are ready to kind of flip around with me. Um, or, you know, your cell phone and your cell phone can flip around with us. But let me start with reading these first three verses of the 20th chapter of Exodus. It says, Then God spoke all these words, 
saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And within these three verses, we'll see God quickly bring out these three points. The first point is he brings out his, his glory. The second one, he brings out his grace. And then the third point we'll look at is, is our response. So it's glory, grace, response is what we'll see in these verses here. Um, so let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you so much that we can call you our Father, that you have come down to meet with us that we can look at your word and see who you are, what you've done, and how you want us to live. Father, as we study, pray that you would work in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. Amen. Okay, so the first verse says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, and, you know, when you read any book, always you see, you know, this person says this, this person says this, and we kind of we skip over it, but... Let's take a step back and just think about what it says here. It says, God spoke all these words to Moses. So here we have the creator God who has come down to speak to his creation. And like I said, we, you know, we, we read it all the time, God said this, God said this, but it is an incredible thing that God would even do that, that God from heaven comes down and, and says, hey, guys, I want to be in a relationship with you. Here, I'm going to speak with you. Um, in Holland, where I grew up, we, have a, uh, we still have a king. Uh, the king doesn't have any um, actual power. It's ceremonial, just like in England. Um, but it's still quite a big deal. And so when it's his birthday, we celebrate what's called King's Day. And the royal family will decide on a city in the country that they will visit. And people will come in their thousands to come and see the king and the royal family because the king here comes down and, and meets with the people in the country. And it's a, it's a big deal. We celebrate it all over the country. Everyone dresses up in orange. Um, so those are, you know, when you see pictures of Holland, you see orange everywhere. It's because the last name of the king is of orange. Um, and so the king will come and everyone will be like, this is, this is great. The king is going to come to our town and everyone lines the streets hoping to shake his hands or just get ex Nowadays, what people do is they have their cell phones and they take selfies sometimes. Um, and the royal family, I mean, they try to, make, to, try to be approachable. But here, it's, it's kind of the same thing, but on such a bigger scale, because this is not just the king of a country. This is the king and creator of the world who has now said, hey, I'm coming down to meet with you. And so before we skip over a verse like that, let's keep in mind, hey, this is, this is God himself who is speaking to people. And then what he says is, I am the Lord your God. Now, is God introducing himself here to Moses and say, hi, Moses, I am the Lord your God? No, Moses knew very well who was talking to him there. If you read the previous chapter, you'll see that God had come down, there was thunder, there was lightning, there was all kinds of stuff going on. So Moses knew who he was talking about here. But what God is doing here is he gives the answer, he summarizes the answer of a question that has been answered throughout the book of Exodus so far. Um, Chris has been preaching through the first 12 chapters uh, about a year, year and a half ago, and 
um, looked at some of this, uh, so I'm not going to go into, into a lot of depth here, but if you want to turn with me real quick to chapter, or the verses will be up on the screen as well. Um, chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, this is where God has come down to meet Moses at the burning bush uh, after Moses has been away from Egypt for uh, 40 years. And Moses, uh, God has said you know, how he's heard his people suffering, how he's, gonna re- um, how he's going to bring them out of Egypt, and then he tells Moses, and, and in order to bring them out, I'm going to use you, so you need to go back to Egypt. Moses says, no, I don't want to go. Who am I to go? And then God says, God doesn't start building up Moses and say, no, you're Moses, you're such a great guy, you can do this. No, God says, well, I'm with you. That's really all you need. And then Moses says in verse 13, it says, Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And then they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So God is, Moses is saying, well, God, we don't even know your name. We don't actually know who you are. Which, you know, they've been in Egypt for a long time. And since, since the days of Joseph, nothing has really happened. God hasn't come down, spoken with anyone. So they know that there is this God of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but they haven't experienced anything. And so Moses says, well, if I go, out, go to these people and say, God has spoken to me, they're going to say, well, we don't even know this God. What is his name? And then in verse 14, it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to this to your sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. So God tells Moses, well, this is my name. I am. And in the rest of the Bible, whenever, whenever that name is there, in most of our translations, you will find the L-O-R-D all capitalized. Um, and the reason that most translations choose to translate it that way is because we don't know for sure how the Hebrew word was pronounced. Um, most likely something like Yahweh, but the Hebrews wouldn't say the word out of respect for God. And so they put, when they, the Hebrew script just had consonants initially, and then when they started putting vowels with it, they weren't sure, and so they put the vowels of the word Adonai, which means Lord, because that's the word they would use whenever they read the name of God, because they wouldn't want to say it out of respect for the name and to make sure they didn't use the, word, the name of the Lord in vain. And so uh, that's where the word Jehovah comes from. It's the consonants of God's name with the vowels of the word Adonai or Lord. So we know it's not actually what it was, but um, so, so our Bibles translated as Lord, and you'll find all the letters are capitalized. So when we go back to Exodus 20, we'll see this is what, what God says here. It says, I am the Lord, he says, I am Yahweh. I am, I am. He, he gives his personal name there. Um, so Moses, Moses asked a question, God, we don't know your name. God says, this is my name. And then Moses must be like, well, fine. So now I tell the people, I am has sent me, which you know, I'm not sure how much more that would encourage the people. But what God does in the rest of the book of Exodus is he shows them who he really is. 
Um, but Moses is not the only one to ask about God. If, if we look at chapter 5, where Moses goes to Pharaoh the first time, it says, um, And afterward Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. So not just Moses said, we don't even know who you are, and the people will not know who you are when I go. Now Pharaoh says, well, I don't know the Lord, and I'm not going to listen to the Lord, because I don't even know who he is. I'm not going to let you go. So then the plagues happen, the rescue from Exodus happens, the Red Sea happens, and throughout all this, God is showing Moses and the people of Israel and Pharaoh who he is. He shows his power, he shows his rule over nature, and so through, through these experiences, the people of Israel start to understand who this person, this God is that has given them his personal name. He says, I'm going to be your God. This is my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And now I'm going to show you my power, my glory. I'm going to show you who I am. And he led them to the mountain of Sinai, where he would then make his covenant with his people. And that's where we see God, that's why we see God saying, well, I am the Lord your God saying, remember everything that I've done over these last months, the plagues, the rescue, all these things, this is who I am. This is my, my power. I am the God of heaven and earth, and I am the one who is making this covenant with you. And the, the structure of how this is put together is very similar to how, at that time, Ruling kings would make treaties with countries they had conquered. So this is something that um, scholars have noticed about, about these first five books, the book of Deuteronomy. It said, hey, you know, at the time, you know, all the countries were at war with each other all the time. The country of Egypt would conquer other countries, and they would say, okay, I've conquered you now. Here, here is our agreement. This is how I'm going to rule you. First, I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to tell you what I've done to deserve to be ruling your country, and here are all the requirements, plus curses and blessings if you obey or disobey. And we find the same pattern in the book of Exodus here, in the book of Deuteronomy later on. And we may say, well, you know, God didn't need human provisions to, to write to his people. Um, that's true, but God always uses human ways of communicating. If you look at the New Testament, we see Paul, you know, he writes letters according to how letters were written at the time. So if we know how people wrote letters, we can see, well, what is his main point? What is he saying here? And so there's a book, it's called uh, The Structure of Biblical Authority by an Old Testament scholar named Meredith Klein. And he looked at, the, he compared these treaties that archaeologists found of kings that conquered other countries, and he compared it with the Old Testament. And one of the things he proved, basically, at the time, because at the time, a lot of people said, oh, the, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all these books were written much later, you know, during the 700 BC, you know, after, after Israel had fallen, it's when they put this together to try to show why they had failed. 
Um, but what he said is, no, if you look at the treaties from, from much earlier, you can see that these books match exactly with how those were written. And so he basically said, showed that how the, all these scholars that said, oh, you know, these books were much later, how they were wrong, because God used the treaties at the time and said, hey, I'm going to make my covenant with you. I'm going to use this formula that you're familiar with. And what God is saying is that, you know, these, these conquering victorious kings made this treaty to show, hey, I'm ruling you. God basically says to Israel, I am your king. I have made you my own. And now this is what I'm going to require of you. So the structure shows that God is the reigning king of Israel. So he's, he's, he's shown them who he is. He says, you are already my people, and now here are my requirements for you. So God didn't come down to Moses at the burning bush and say, hey, Moses, here are the Ten Commandments. Go to your people and make them follow me. He said, no, Moses, I'm going to help your people. I'm going to make you mine, and then you'll come to Sinai, and I'll, I'll give you these, the Ten Commandments and this, these requirements for you. Because at that point, I've liberated you, I've shown you who I am, and now your people should be ready to follow me. So when God says, I am the Lord your God, he, he's referring to his power, his glory, everything he has shown so far. And so the foundation of God's relationship, God's covenant with Israel, it begins with his glory, with his, the people seeing his glory. So that's just in that verse first. But he, he doesn't stay with just, I am the Lord, I'm the powerful ruler. He also says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he's not talking here about who he is. He now talks about what he has done. So he talked about who he is, I'm the Lord your God. Now he says, this is what I did for you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then he says, he brought, uh, the land of Egypt, which is the house of slavery. Now you would think, well, this is only, you know, it's not very long since they left it. Why does God need to point out to them that Egypt was the land of slavery? Well, it's because they'd already started to forget. You think, well, why did they, how did they forget? Well, if you look at chapter 16, this is after God takes them out of Egypt. They're on their way to Mount Sinai. Chapter 16 says, at the beginning there, it's, they, they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. So it's about a month and a half since they left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So it's what, six, seven weeks after they left Egypt, and now they're thinking back and saying, oh, Egypt was such a good place. We had pots of meat. We had as much bread as we wanted. It was great in Egypt. And you're like, no, Egypt was not great. Remember, you were crying out to God for deliverance. It was not a good place. But by this time, they're, they're already thinking back, and they say, oh, it, it was much better than here in the wilderness. And so God says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, which if you remember, if you, you know, remember two months back, it was bad. It was the house of slavery. It was not a good place to be. 
So why did they forget? Why did they stop following God and think that it, it really would have been better to go to Egypt? Now it's because, because there is a difference between knowing something. They, they knew that God had brought them out. They knew that God you know, had, had this power that God had shown him. But the reason they weren't, they, they, were, they knew what God could do, but they weren't trusting God. They weren't believing that God would take care of them. And you'll find after God gives them the Ten Commandments, what's the first thing they do? They break them by making an idol. Right? They break the second commandment where it says, you shall make for yourself an idol. And what, the first thing they do is they make an idol, and they give all their gold, silver, they put it and make it into the golden calf that they worship. Now why... They've just seen God's power. They've just been liberated. Why is the first thing they do break the very commandment that God gives them? I, I think it, it all comes down to the same thing. They, they knew who God was, but they didn't believe, they didn't trust that God would take care of them. They say, well, we don't know what happened to Moses. We don't know what the, who this God is. Let's just make our own calf and worship it. And there's, so God tries to remind him and say, hey, this was really bad. Remember all that I've done for you? God tries to remind them, this is what, this is my grace. This is what I've done for you. And they say, well, you know, it wasn't so bad. We really can do this on our own. And this difference between knowing something and believing or trusting is something that, it wasn't just their problem. It's something that, is very pertinent in every one of our, our lives. And you may say, well, why? You know, we, we know the Bible, we study the Bible the whole time. But the question is, do we actually believe the things that the Bible says about us? When the Bible says that God has made us righteous, you know, we can memorize the verses where it says, you know, God has, has now given us Christ's righteousness. But do we believe it? Do we believe that we are now holy people? Or do we still think of ourselves as sinners? Because if you look at the Bible, when God saves us, we are now holy ones, saints. We still sin, but our identity has changed. Um, the Bible says that Jesus loves us. We know that Jesus loves us, but do we believe it? Do we believe that Jesus loves us in spite of everything that we have done? Do we believe that we are worthy just because of what the Bible says? And do we, do we believe that we are holy? Do we believe that we are loved? And we may say, yes, we do, because we've memorized the verses we know. But what we know, you know we, f we find out what someone knows by hearing to them talk. We may say, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, I'm, you know, all these things. But what we believe, we find out by what we do. And um, we have, we've, we've talked about this in our, in our man's, the, the Conquer series we've been doing among the, the man here, but usually sin is the result of believing some lie instead of believing the truth. An um, example we talked about is, you know, as, as parents, fathers, it's Father's Day, uh, we may get angry with our children, because temporarily we believe that getting angry at them will give us the result that we want. But instead, we should trust what the Bible says, which says, you know, put away anger, because 
Even though temporarily we may get what we want, in the end we've damaged the relationship with our child. Another, another example, I think, where we can see what we actually believe instead of what we know is um, in prayer. We, we know from the scripture that God says, you know, ask in prayer, keep asking in prayer. For example, if there's a family member that we would really like to be saved, we know God says they, um, he, he can save anyone. But if we believe God, what kind of those words from God, what kind of action would it lead to? It would lead us to prayer for that person. And if we say, oh, we don't really need to pray for this person, then I think what we, what we say is we've kind of given up on God's promise that they can save the person. So prayer, prayer becomes an action of faith. If God says, I can do something like this, we may know that he can do it, but if we believe it, we will start asking him for it. And that's why probably when, when the New Testament, when it says, you know, if you, if you ask in faith, you will give it. It's not a promise that we will get what we want, but it's a, it's prayer becomes our, the outworking of faith in our lives because of what God has said. We kind of Skip ahead here a little bit. So God says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, and, and we saw that God is telling them, I've, I've been so gracious to you. I've done so many things for you. And Israel said, well, it wasn't really that bad. It's not really that bad if we break his covenant. You know, we're, we're not really willing to follow God because they, they didn't believe, they didn't trust that God would take care of them. And so in these... These first few verses, God has said, I am the Lord your God. I am the powerful creator, the ruler of the earth, and the ruler of, of you as a nation. I've, I've liberated you for myself. And he says, I brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he, he tells them about his glory. He tells them about his grace, what he has done for them. And only then does he move on to the next, the next portion, which says... You shall have no other gods before me. And we know that, that here, here he starts the Ten Commandments, but what he's doing is he, he starts with his glory, he moves on to his grace, and now he's asking for the people's response. He says, in light of who I am, in light of what I have done for you, this is what your response should be. You should have no other gods before me. And you're like, you're reading this and you say, yes, I mean, God defeated Pharaoh, he brought the ten plagues, he, he fed the people in the wilderness. Of course, they're going to say, you know, in light of who you are, in light of what you've done, of course, we're not going to have another God before you. Um, obviously, we know from the rest of the Old Testament that that's not how the people actually ended up reacting. And we just talked a little bit about why, but um, th this first commandment here, you shall have no other gods before me, it's kind of a summary statement of all the requirements from God. If you look at it, you know, the first, the second one is you shall not make an idol. Well, if you make an idol, you've put something else before God. The third one is um, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Again, once you do that, you've put something else before God. If you break the Sabbath, if you don't honor your father or mother, basically every commandment that God gives here in the Ten Commandments or later throughout the book, Every time it's broken, we break the first commandment because we put something else before God. 
And that's why Jesus says the, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Put God in the first, in the first place. And this is kind of the that's, the... that's a positive way of saying is love God, put Him first. This is a negative way of saying it. You shall have no other gods before me. So God is saying that your response to what I've done for you and who I am should be have no other gods. Put me first. Follow me. And so the Ten Commandments and all the requirements that God gives in this covenant become about do we put God first or do we put something or someone else first? And this is not just a pattern that we see in the Old Testament, but if you look through the New Testament, you'll see the same things. You'll find that it starts with God's glory, God's grace, and then in light of who God is, in light of what God has done, here is now what I want you to do. Um, let's just look at the, 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 some of the main authors in the New Testament. If you look at Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that's probably a verse that you, you will know. It says, um, this is Paul writing. He's just spent 11 chapters explaining the gospel. And now he says... Therefore, so in light of these 11 chapters of, of who God is, God's glory, God's righteousness, God's grace in, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in light of all of that, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, or some Bibles say in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Or another way to, to translate the word is, is reasonable or logical. So Paul is saying, in light of all that God has done for us, doesn't it make sense to give our bodies as living sacrifices, which means you know, give, our, give our lives to God or put nothing else before God? Um, and, and if you read Paul's other letters, you'll see he always starts with the theology section, the teaching section. This is what God has done. And then the second half of his letters is all, now in light of what God has done, here is how I want you to live. Um, if we look at um, John, another author, you know, John, 1 John chapter 4, we see the same, the same principle there. In verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If you remember when we talked about this passage around Valentine's Day, that ought really means we owe this debt of loving one another. So in, because, in light of God's love, because God loves us, we should also love. And he says it again in verse 19, we love because he, God, first loved us. So our, the love that we have for one another that John is talking about is a response to the love that God has for us. We don't go out there loving one another hoping that it will be acceptable to God. God John says, no, because God loves us, that's why we're going to love one another. Um, another major, major author, uh, Peter, he, he does the same thing. First uh, Peter 14 through 16, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's where he quotes the Old Testament. Because God throughout the book of Leviticus says, hey, I am holy, therefore I want you to be holy. And so the, the point is not that we try to be holy to live up to God's requirements 
to somehow be acceptable to God. The point is that God says, well, you're already, you, you know who I am. This is what I've done for you. You're already holy, so I want you to live this way because you are already holy. We don't try to live up to a standard to be acceptable to God. God says to Israel here in, in Exodus 20, I am your God. I have rescued you. That is why I want you to live this way. Just like the, the king in ancient times would say, hey, I have conquered your country. That is why I want you to live this way. That's why I want you to follow me and obey me. God says to Israel, I am your king. I'm the one who has bought you, who has rescued you. That's why I want you to live this way. So when we look at the covenant that God makes in, in Exodus with the, with the people of Israel, we see, we see God's glory. It all starts with God's glory. He shows who he is. Then he moves on to his grace. He shows them what he's done. And then he comes with the required response. And as we saw, just a brief overview of the New Testament shows, it, it, it follows the same pattern. We need to know who God is. We need to know what he's done. And then God asks us for, for that response. And so I think there's a, there's a couple of important implications based on that pattern here. Um, one is that we always need to keep all three of these aspects in mind. We need to keep the glory, the grace, and the response together. Because if you start separating one out, we'll get a very, a very mixed up view of God. Um, because what would happen if, if all we look at is God's glory, who he is, his righteousness, his holiness? Um, well, this is where we would probably end up like um, Martin Luther in his early days. Uh, if you know the story, he was um, a student at one point, he was driving along a road on his way home, and lightning hit a tree next, almost next to where he was. He was afraid. He cried out, uh, if, if you save me, I'll become a monk. And obviously, he survived, so he was like, okay, well, now I have to go into the monastery to be a monk. Um, and he entered the monastery. Uh, apparently, he wasn't very happy about this next step in his life, but he was like, well, I made a promise, so I should do this. And it is said that when he was in the, in the monastery, you know, the, the, the Catholic monastery had to do confession, but he would be doing confession for hours a day. He would be sitting there in, in the you know, confession seat where the, uh, whoever was the superior in the, in the monastery would, would take confession from the monks, and Luther would just be there on hours at an end confessing every little thing he could think of because he was afraid of the righteousness of God. He was like, I, I can't do this. And at one point, his superior said, hey, hey, Martin, please come back when you, have something actually, when you actually have something to confess to me. And Luther was like, well, there's, I'm not righteous. I need to confess everything. And then his superior told him, well, how about you look at the, the merits of Christ? Read, read the book of Romans. And that's when Luther started realizing that it's not his own righteousness, but that we get Christ's righteousness. And he realized it's not now, up to him to live up to the standards. But before he started realizing that, all he saw was the, the righteousness, the holiness of God, and it made him afraid. He was scared. And he may be a little bit extreme, but a lot of people in this world have a, a similar issue, not to the degree that Luther had probably, but a lot of people, if you come down to it, they say, well, I, I don't want to follow God because I don't think I'm good enough. I'm not good enough for God to love me. 
Um, people may not always say that outright, but in, the, in, in their hearts, if you find, if you dig deep enough, a lot of people will say, well, I'm not, I'm not really worthy to be loved by God, so I'm, I don't want to be a part of, of the church of, of Jesus. And even for us in the church, we may often kind of struggle with these thoughts. You know, we know what we've done, and we may think, well, I'm, not, I'm, I'm dirty, I'm not clean, I'm not worthy to be loved by God. But here's the, here's the cool thing, that if we, if we have thoughts like that, or it, there's people out there that think that way. The cool thing is that look at the blood of Jesus, look at Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That blood has the power to forgive every sin of every person in every nation, past, present, and future. Everything. Because the Bible says if, if, if someone believes, all their sins are forgiven, and that applies to everyone at all times. So what, whatever it is that we say, hey, I, I did this, I don't think God can forgive me for this, well, just compare your sins to the sins of all humanity in all times. Well, if, Christ, if, Christ, if the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, can forgive all, has the potential to forgive all of that, the power to forgive all of that, then whatever it is that you've done, whatever it is that, that I have done, is nothing in comparison the blood of Jesus is more than powerful enough to cover every one of our sins and much more. And so that thought of, well, I'm not good enough for God. God is, God is holy. God is perfect. No, it comes from looking at God's glory without looking at the grace of God. Now, what happens if we just look at the grace of God without the glory and the response? Well, this is where we come to a place where we think, well, Jesus is my buddy, Jesus is my friend, God's done all these things for me. Um, and we kind of lose the fact that this Jesus is also the, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who made everything, the one who sustains everything, the one who could make an end to everything in just a split second if he wanted to. Um, and I think that's a very unhealthy place to be as well. Um, and if we... Uh, there's one more verse here in, in Exodus chapter 20 that kind of teaches us, I think, the balance that God wants us to have. Um, uh, let's see here. Let's start reading in verse 18. So this is right after God finishes giving the Ten Commandments. It says, uh, all the people, so all the people of Israel, these two million people that were camped out there in the desert, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. So these are visible signs of God's presence, God's holiness, God's glory. And it says, Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, or we will die. So they see God's power, and they say, Oh, you know, we're going to die. And then Moses says to the people in verse 20, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So this is a, a very interesting verse. He, Moses says, don't be afraid of God because he's not just going to kill you. Remember the grace part. He saved you out of Egypt. But Moses says, don't be afraid, but you do. The reason God is showing you who he is is that you may fear him. And this is a, a term that, that you'll see coming back throughout the rest of the scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in, in Proverbs, for example. So God 
shows, showed himself to the Israelites so they would fear him. Not to be afraid that God was going to kill them on the spot, but that they would fear him. And because of the fear, the result would be that you may not sin. So if we, if we just look at God's grace without looking at his glory, then we get into a, a position where we think, well, anything is okay because Christ has forgiven me anyway. Christ is my friend. We're just going to hang out a little bit. And, um, but, but we need to have that balance between the glory and the grace. Otherwise, we will not have a fear of God and we will not be in that position where we know we need to obey. Now, what would happen if we, we, instead of looking at the glory and the grace, we just look at the response part? We just look at the requirements that God gives us in Scripture. Well, I think it's pretty, pretty easy to see what would happen. We would just get into some sort of a legalistic framework. We would just say, well, we have to keep all the rules, and that's really all there is to Christianity. Now, we don't look at who God is. We don't look at what he has done. We just look at the rules and say, well, we just need to keep these rules, and that is that is all there is to Christianity. But as we've, we've seen with Israel, you know, God showed them who he is and what he had done, and they still wouldn't obey. If we don't have the motivation to obey the rules, if we don't, have the, if we don't look at the glory of God, if we don't look at the grace of God, then we are definitely not going to be obedient to God. We can try, but we are not going to follow his rules. We just, things will get very legalistic, and this is where you, know, you see Jesus con- confronting the Pharisees about their legalism. They said, well, it's just about following the rules. It's not about, it's not about grace. Uh, we just need to follow these rules, and that's all there is to it. And Jesus had, you know, the strongest, the strongest speeches of Jesus were against the Pharisees for this kind of theology. And so the, the point, the important point is that we need, we need to think about God's glory. We need to think about God's grace, and we need to look at the response that God wants from us all together. Um, the, the other, I think, important implication of this is, you know, the first one is we need to keep it all together. The second one is that in order to get the response right, in order for us to respond to God the way he wants to, we need to make sure we focus on those first two. So if there is an area in our lives where we are struggling to obey God, then maybe the reason is that we are not really aware of his, his glory, his holiness, or we haven't grasped the depth of the grace, what God did for us. Um, let's, let's look at a passage here in Luke chapter 7. I'm not actually sure if this one's on the PowerPoint or not. Um, but Luke chapter 7, if you want to turn there, verses 40 through 47. Jesus here is in the house of a Pharisee by the name of Simon. And later in the passage, we find out that Simon invited Jesus over to come and eat there, but he didn't even provide the basic level of hospitality. He didn't even have Jesus' feet washed. Uh, he didn't provide water. He, there was a lot of things that he should have done for any guest that he didn't do for Jesus. Uh, and then a woman comes in, and this woman starts um, wiping Jesus' feet with her tears and washing it with her hair. Um, she has an, an alabaster jar with perfume that she uses to... Uh, um, to wipe and, and clean and anoint Jesus. And Simon then thinks, well, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know that this was, this was not a good woman, and he would not let her touch him. And in verse 40, 40, it says, And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. 
And he replied, well, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Well, Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So the point that Jesus is making is not that because this woman is anointing his feet, she is now forgiven. The point he is making is that she knows who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for him, that, she, that he's forgiven her sins. And that is why she now does these acts of, of love toward Jesus. Whereas Simon, the important man, didn't even provide the basic things that you would expect for someone that invites you for dinner because he did not realize who Jesus was and he did not realize the things that Jesus would do for him. And so if we are, are in a position where we are not giving God the response that he, he wants from us or he, he asks from us, if we are in a position where we're struggling in an area, where we um, have, have sin that we're uh, working through or um, where, we, where we just don't want to obey God, um, maybe it's because we haven't really understood his glory and his grace, just like Simon here. And so let's, just, let's talk a little bit about, about that glory and that grace, uh, because it would be helpful you know, if we're saying, well, if we're struggling with our response, maybe just like, like the Israelites, we need to be told first about God's glory and grace. In we know these kind of things, but we need to grasp and lay hold of them. And so, if we look at the the glory of God, there's a, there's a couple of times where the Bible gives us a vision of the throne room in heaven. Uh, one of them is Isaiah chapter six, and um, Isaiah sees a vision of God in heaven, and there's these angelic beings, and all they're doing is what. They, they are declaring day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So these beings are in the presence of God, and because of God's holiness, all they do is just say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They, they can't stop speaking about God's holiness to each other. The other person, the other, it's not like they're saying, hey, just in case you didn't know, God's holy, because the other, the other beings are right there with them. They also know God's holiness. They're like, we, we just can't stop talking about the holiness of God. And when, when John later has a vision of heaven as well in Revelation, he sees exactly the same thing. It says, you know, God is on the throne, and there's these beings, these living beings, again with six wings, and they say, and, and all they do is what? they are still declaring to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So between Isaiah, you know, about 700 years before Christ, and John here at the end of the first century, for the last 800 years, these beings have just been declaring 
the holiness of God because of what they, what they see in the presence of God. Um, and, and you see that in Revelation chapter 4, whenever they declare this, the, the elders fall down and worship. And then um, in chapter 5, Jesus comes into the equation. So at that point, it's not just God's holiness, but also the grace of Jesus dying on the cross. And you'll see that every creature in heaven and on earth ends up worshiping the Lamb. Um, but if we, if we want to understand the glory of God, that's, that's what it is. When we, if we see God and His glory, then like these angels, the only response is, holy is God. Um, and, and the other thing we could focus on to grasp is His grace. And I know we, we know about God's grace. We know, you know Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But there, there is so much more, as we were saying earlier. It, it's not just that he died on the cross for our sins, and now we can you know, make, it, make it to heaven by, by holding on to Jesus, and, and, and we can just kind of get there. Um, what, what Jesus did on the cross for us is so much more than that. He made us, as we said earlier, he made us righteous. He gave us his righteousness. So we are perfect in God's eyes. He gave us his, his, his holiness. He loves us more than we would ever know. And there's, there's so much more. And there's, there's one of my favorite passages here in, in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, let's just turn there and have a look at, at some of the, the riches of God's grace. Ephesians chapter 1, and you know, some of those people take this passage and they're like, well, you know, this is teach predestination, and they start arguing about those kind of things, but what this passage should really be called is just the riches of God's grace. Um, starting, in, starting in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So right there, Paul is saying, you've been given every spiritual blessing, not you will get every spiritual blessing at some point in the future when you go to heaven. He says, no, you already have. He has blessed us. This is not just present. This is past tense. This is past perfect. It has already happened. Every spiritual blessing, everything you ever need spiritually is already yours in Christ. Then he says in verse 4, he chose us. So God said, you know, you know how like in, in primary school, or high school, you, you're in physical education, or you're just playing with friends, and you're like doing some team thing, and you get to pick, and there's always some people like me that get picked last. <laughs> so God here says, hey, you were not one of those that got picked last. I chose you. I picked you. You're you on my team. And he did this, by the way, before the foundation of the world, so it's not based on anything you did. He did this long before you ever existed. Um, and then in the middle of this, he says that we would be holy and blameless before him. So he's like, you know, in view of that God has chosen us, let's be holy and blameless. Um, but it also says not just that we would live holy and blameless, but he says we, we are. The reason he chose us is to be holy and blameless. So we, we said we have been made holy, we have been made blameless. Um, then in verse 5, we are adopted as sons, According to his will, um, in, in verse 7 it says, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, and then it says, according to the riches of his grace. So God's, God's not stingy with his grace. He 
verse 8, it says, he lavished it on us. And the picture I, I love there is like, it's like God has this treasure chest of grace, and he's just pouring it out over us. That's what he does. He doesn't just say, oh, you know, I, I saved you. I'm just going to kind of snatch you out of hell, and, and you can be in heaven, and that's good enough. No, he says, Here, here's everything, everything. There's holiness, there's adoption, there's I, I chose you, all these things, all this, this treasure chest of grace he's just dumping out on us. Um, and he says, um, um, in verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, so there's still things to come. Um, and then if you look read further, it says that we have the Holy Spirit of, we have the Holy Spirit of promise. All these things he has given to us. So when we think about God's grace, not just think about, oh, I'm, I'm saved, because that is big, but there's so much more that God did for us. And then the cool thing is, you know, for those of you who have studied the passage, there's something that's, that's repeated here three times. And that says, God, God's giving us all these things. He's giving us the riches of his grace. For what? For the praise of his glory. So that's where we, that balance comes in again, because we can go overboard and say, you know, God is just so good to me. He's doing all this for me. He's giving me holiness, righteousness. Jesus is building me a house in heaven that I'm going to live one day. He's doing all this for me. And God says, oh, wait, no, I'm, I'm definitely for you. I'm definitely doing all these things for you. But guess what? In the end, it's not about you. It's about my glory. I'm giving all these things. I'm, I'm making you, I'm calling you holy righteousness. I, I have my son die and rise for you. Yes, but it's not about you in the end. It is all about my glory. And that's where that, that balance comes in again. It's not just the grace we get, but it's the grace we get so we can give glory to God, so we can live according to God's will and bring glory to God. And so we need, to, we need to put all these three things together. God did it at the very beginning when he made his, um, his covenant with Israel. He says, here's my glory, here's my grace, and now this is what I want from you. And it's the same for us. We, have, we understand God's glory even more. We understand God's grace so much more. And so our response should be so much more. And let me... Um, since it is Father's Day, I think one other, one, one other implication, this is especially for us as fathers or, or anyone who is a parent or a teacher or has, has any influence on children, I think it can be easy, and I don't know if this is just father thing, but I know for me it can be easy to teach Christianity and focus on, hey, we should do this, you shouldn't do this, God wants us to do this and this to focus on the response to rules, to requirements, and, and to kind of judge the spiritual state of our children by how well they behave. But what we do there is we teach the response part, but if we don't teach the, the glory and the grace part first, then there's going to be a big disconnect, and Christianity is just about following the rules. So as fathers, as parents, as teachers, it is important that we don't just say, oh, this is what God wants us to do, this is what Jesus asked us to do. We need to go back and say, hey, here's who God is, here's what God has done for you, and that is why we want you to live the way we want you to live. That is why God has given us these requirements. 
It's not because he's a spoiled sport. It's not because he doesn't want us to have fun. It's because of his holiness and because of his grace. And if we get that right, I think we'll, we'll do a, a much better job in teaching the full counsel of God, teaching who he is, teaching what he has done, and then talking about our response because of who he is and what he has done. We're not, we're not doing these things to be acceptable for God. We're doing it because we are already accepted by God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your glory. We thank you that you are the God of heaven and earth. We thank you that you have come down to reveal yourself to us. We thank you for your grace in speaking to us. We thank you for your grace in saving us. And we, may, we may be like Israel sometimes and forget what you saved us from and out of. Father, I pray for, for all of us to have a, a greater glimpse of who you are and what you have done, to understand more the, the glories of your grace so that it will motivate us to to surrender all, to live for you, and to give you the response that you deserve. Amen.